In preparation for preaching of the word this morning, we will be reading from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 22 to the end of the chapter. So Acts 15, 22 through 41. Then pleased it the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seems good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same thing by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Farewell. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read it, they rejoiced. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there for a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. But notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cecilia, confirming the churches. You may be seated. Good morning. Let's go to God and pray before we jump in here this morning. Father, we thank you for your good word, and I pray your word this morning would have its way in our hearts our minds. I pray your word would be planted deep within us and that this word would be a word that we take with us, a word that we walk in yet today and this week and the days ahead. Father, I ask that you would teach us what you would have us to know this morning from your word. Grateful, Lord, that your word has power to save. So, Father, I trust that just now as the word goes out, Father, it does so, knowing that it's going to bear fruit, it's going to land, it's going to penetrate hearts, it's going to affect lives. So, Father, to this end, I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. As a prelude to to the text this morning, if you have something you're writing with, 
You may want to write this down. Some of you may be intelligent and smart enough to be able to do all this in your head. And uh, if that's you, that's great. Others of you, go ahead and write this down. There's a math problem. Some of you, how many math people we have in the room? Just a few math people. There's a few math. I knew we had a few in the body. Okay, here's, here's what I want you to think through. I want you to, th- and I, I tried to make this simple. I tried to. Um, I say that and I also had to double check. I wanted to double check and make sure it was the right answer. Four plus six minus five times two to the second power or two squared. Now, if we were to take that math problem, some of us might be inclined just to go straight across and go four plus six, that's 10. 10 minus five, well, that's five. Five times two, uh, that's 10. 10 squared, 10 times 10, we get 100. 100. Some of you might look at that problem and you might go, well, that two squared needs some work. We need to do something with that two squared first. So you might go four plus six is 10. 10 minus five is five. Five times two, two, two squared would be four. Five times four, then would be 20. So some of us might get 100. Some of us might get 20. Some of us might also work it this way. You've got four plus six minus five times two squared. You're going to take your two squared first, which gives us four. So you've got four plus six minus five times four. Now you're going to use the multiplication. You have a negative five times four. So it's going to be four plus six minus 20. That's your negative five times four. Now you have four plus six. You've got addition and subtraction. Four plus six is 10, and you have 10 minus 20, and your answer being negative 10. By the way, I checked that with my son before this morning just to kind of make sure I was in the right mode in thinking about these order of operations. You see, there's a certain order of operations, isn't there? It's needed to arrive at the correct answer. A procedure to work through. What's the procedure for? It dictates the priority of what goes first, second, third, and so on. There are parentheses, exponents, powers, roots, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction in general. And if you go out of order, you end up with a wrong answer to your math problem. And if you get the answer wrong in our household, all that means is essentially that you have a longer list of corrections waiting you on Monday morning. If you look at the text, starting in verse 36, and we'll be looking through 41. We can read this text and look through this text through a a lens of of these order of operations. Verse 37, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. He was wanting to add Mark. We see in the very next verse, Paul insisted they should not take Mark. He wanted to subtract Mark. Uh Uh-uh, don't want to take Mark. Mark departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. According to Paul, he'd established a pattern of being subtracted from their presence. He he didn't want him around. Well, the contention became so sharp when we look at the text that they parted from one another. There's some division there, isn't there? Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. He did add Mark. Paul chose Silas and departed for Syria and Cilicia, and he added Silas. The big picture of the text, multiplication. There are four people that go out now instead of two. You see a variety of operations in the text. And and I point this out primarily just to have our eyes, eyes set on God this morning. 
See, what looks like in the text, and seems like, really, when you read it, a dismal situation, and it looks like a text focused on simply one order of operation, division. It's what it could look like. There's more here, church, than division, and praise the Lord for that. In my Bible, the uninspired heading reads, Division over John Mark. Is that what yours says? Something like that? Well, this is not primarily what I hope to preach this morning. Was there a split that occurred over this young man, John Mark? Yes. But is division the point? Is, is the main point division or multiplication, as we'll see here in a moment? Is the point to wade in the heated contention of Paul and Barnabas's argument, of which we really have very little details? Is it a point to carry out some detailed analysis of who's in the right, who's in the wrong? Or is the text here once again highlighting our exceedingly abundant kind of God that we serve? I believe the text places a prominent position, the work of God. God is doing a work here. And you know, where man has done a masterful job at causing division, God is always looking to add loyal hearts to his kingdom work. Only God, church, only God can take an apparent division and multiply it for his good. So I'd like you to see this morning from the text what God is doing. It's sort of like God being, going back to our earlier math problem, God is the, the, the parentheses in the order of operations. The parentheses, as you know, are always done first. You've got to do what's inside the parentheses first. In fact, if you go back to those same set of numbers and you just put parentheses around the six and the five, you'll have the six minus five. You have to work that out first. And so you have four plus one times two squared. Then you go to your exponent. And the bottom line is your answer should be eight, not negative ten. It's because you're working out what's in the parentheses first. You get a different answer. All because the parentheses are worked out first. You know, and I was thinking, you know, to, to uh, have us look and consider, church, what might happen if God's priorities were always given first place? How might things be different in your life today if God and his word were given priority? When I read the book of Acts, I see an exponential increase brought about when God's people follow God's ways. We go all the way back to Acts 2.41 and we see that there were 3,000 added. 3,000 souls added. If you listen to Acts 9.31, it says that the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. This is, this is what God is doing in the book of Acts. Not just from a numbers standpoint. Yes, there are numbers involved, but there's also some depth involved as we see the work of Paul and Barnabas and their desire to disciple and not simply make converts. So what's going on here in these few verses? Well, some days have passed where Paul and, and Barnabas and Silas and Barsabbas, uh, the, those two from Jerusalem, they came and they're in Antioch and, and they've been teaching and exhorting and preaching to the church there in Antioch. This is right on the heels of the council that just took place in Jerusalem. And they're sending these good words from the letter back to the church at Antioch. And this is a precursor to the second missionary journey 
right here. There's going to be another journey that's going to take place. It's going to spread the gospel to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8, right? To where it's going, to the end of the earth. It's also a record here of a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Two godly men, two men full of the spirit, two men full of faith, arguing over who their traveling companion is going to be. I mean, really, that's the question. Who's going? Who's not going? And so how do we arrive at who's going? Look at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Perhaps winter is coming to a close and the spring is drawing near. Conditions for travel are opening up. And Paul approaches Barnabas with a ministry opportunity. Have you ever received a ministry opportunity? Anybody here ever received a ministry opportunity? An opportunity to serve. An opportunity to do something for the Lord. Doesn't have to be inside these walls. An opportunity to serve. Well, Paul has given Barnabas a ministry opportunity right here. A chance to serve the body of Christ. I I was thinking of Galatians and and the idea of doing good. We're to do good, especially to those of the household of faith. How do you handle a ministry opportunity when it comes your way? Well, Paul is giving this right here. He says, hey, let's go back. Let's visit the believers in every city where we preach the word. Let's go back and encourage and strengthen. Let's continue what the Lord enabled us to start. Let's make disciples, Barnabas. I love the energy there in verse 36. Verse 36, church, tells us a lot about Paul. It provides a zoom lens, if you will, on the apostle's heart. He has one treasure, he has one pearl of great price, and he's pursuing it with everything he has. It captures the thinking of a citizen of heaven. God's people are on his mind. It establishes his motivation. His motivation is simply to please the Lord with his life, to make disciples and not be content with just decisions that people have made. It also sketches an accurate picture of his attitude toward the brethren. He loves them and he wants to present them to God as spiritually mature believers in Christ. That's Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man mature in Christ. And Paul says, I labor, to this end I labor, striving mightily with that which is working in me. Church, what about your heart? Do you have one treasure, one pearl of great price influencing your life decision and direction? Is your heart divided? How many masters are trying to make their way into your life and how many are you clinging to currently? The Bible says that you cannot serve, it's not possible, you cannot serve two masters. What about your thinking? Are the people of God, the things of God, are they they on your mind? Are you mindful of taking care of the house of God? You know, the prophet Haggai had a thought, had an idea right at the beginning. He puts forth this, he's seeing what's going on around him. And he says, it's it's really a rebuke and and exhorting of a major in the first chapter. He's saying, you all are spending time taking care of your paneled homes. And what about God's house? And I think here as we think about just the thinking, the mindset of the people of God. Paul's mind is about God's people. He's calling Barnabas to this ministry opportunity. Let's follow up. Even motivations. Are you concerned first with pleasing the Lord? Does the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, does the love of Christ compel you to live each day for him? 
in your attitude. Do you love the Lord, His Word, and His people? You know, if, if it were possible, because I think most of us would nod our head and go, yeah, I do. But if it were possible to just simply reveal our heart about really what we think about God, what we think about His Word, what we think about His church, I wonder what we would get. I think Paul, here in verse 36, is expressing and showing to us both a heart, a mind, motive, attitude, all of these things you see in verse 30. Paul is ready to go back to the work. And you might ask, well, what prompted Paul to ask the question there in verse 36? Some of you might be inclined to read verse 36 and think about that question and just assume that after all, it's the Apostle Paul. That's what he does. Well, the apostle was called unto the Lord, and the Lord no doubt did some miraculous things through Paul in his lifetime. However, Paul was a man, like you and me. He was a man. He was learned. How did he get that way? Did it just pop into his mind and have it? Did he have it? No, I believe he worked at it. He's considered one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Why? Because the Lord just programmed him to do that work? No, I don't believe that's how it happened. You see, it was a changed heart inside of Paul, which the Lord, compliments of the Lord, a changed heart. Paul is now working out his salvation as God works in him. He forsook all and followed Jesus. Luke 5.11. You see, making disciples, church, is not so much predicated on what you know, but on what your heart looks like. We're in the business of heart work, and it is hard work. And Paul can attest to this. It doesn't come naturally, but supernaturally, as the Spirit of God works in us to be a witness to Jesus all of our days. Paul desired to go back. And check in with the disciples in Galatia and Pamphylia. He wanted to check. Listen, he wanted to check their spiritual pulse. He wanted to take their spiritual temperature for Jesus. To see if the fire and the passion and enthusiasm for Christ was still burning in them. Church. That spiritual fire. That stirring. That joy of the Lord. Ask yourself, is it in me? Is it in me? Ask yourself that question. Can you genuinely sing, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today? Well, Barnabas is the recipient of Paul's invite to join him in the work. And and you get the idea in the text from the surrounding context even at the end of chapter 14 and 21 through 28. Barnabas is all for strengthening the churches with the word of God. He's all about that. Remember, he's an encourager. And I I get the idea. He really enjoyed what went on at the end of chapter 14 when they were going back, cycling back through those those cities and and encouraging the brethren. I believe Barnabas was on board 100% with that. The issue on this occasion is not the work. It's the traveling companion. Who's going? Verse 37, Barnabas, it says, was determined to take with them John called Mark. 
Now that word there for determined has in mind resolve. You get that? Resolve. When you resolve to do something, by golly, you're going to get it done. I'm resolving. I'm standing. I'm not going to move. You're resolved. He was determined. It's the word in John chapter 12, verse 10. The word is used of the Pharisees plotting or resolving to kill Lazarus because on account of Lazarus, many Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And so they're plotting, resolving at that point to kill Lazarus. They want to get him out of the way. We have this initial excitement over serving the Lord once again. And then Barnabas brings up this young man, John Mark. And you wonder in the text, if Mark is in Antioch at this time, it seems it likely that he is. But if you remember back in Acts 13, verse 5, it says that as they were going to Cyprus, they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word. And it says there, they also had John as their assistant. That's John Mark. John was their assistant on this first missionary journey trip. So he accompanied them. But as the missionary trio leaves Cyprus and they go to Paphos, they came to Perga, verse 13 of chapter 13. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And no reasons are given there in the text as to why John goes home, but he does. And so now here they are in Antioch, chapter 15, verse 36 and following. And Barnabas brings John Mark back into the mix. In fact, he resolves that John Mark go with them. Look at verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Barnabas resolved that John Mark should be added. Paul was insisting. That's the idea of the word, was insisting. It's an imperfect tense. Essentially, this means ongoing in the past tense. He kept on insisting. Barnabas was resolving. Paul kept on insisting. Do you see the picture? you see what's going on? Resolve, ongoing insistence. Now, what's behind Barnabas' resolve to have John Mark go? Again, Scripture doesn't give us necessarily all the details, but there are some pieces. There are some thoughts based on who Barnabas is and based on what the, the, the surrounding context tells us. John Mark, first of all, we need to understand is family. John Mark's family. Colossians 4 verse 10 tells us that Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. There's a family issue here, perhaps, at place. I think also with Barnabas, there may have been this idea, Paul, let's give him a second chance. Come on. Yeah, he left us back here in Pamphylia, but let's give him a second chance. Knowing Barnabas, perhaps it was just his compassion to want to help John Mark along. And this son of encouragement, maybe he's resolving to encourage his cousin in the faith and use this trip perhaps to disciple John Mark along the way. I could see that based on what we know of Barnabas. I could see his heart inclined in that direction to want to help John Mark. Why, on the other side, would Paul keep on insisting no to John Mark? I also think Scripture gives us some reasons, some good ideas. Well, he departed from them in Pamphylia. He was going to hinder the work of God, perhaps, Paul's mind. He lacked commitment to the Lord's work. He didn't exhibit any work ethic. He's always known what we'd say, a quitter. He quit. He left. And again, Scripture doesn't say why he left. But 
from Paul's perspective, he left. Could be a low character person, Paul's thought. This guy's not, not he's, he doesn't want any part of the work. The text seems to indicate in verse 38 that Paul remembered what John Mark had done previously a few years ago now. He departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now there's a couple of really good words I believe need to come forward here. First in regard to John Mark. Now Luke chooses, the author, moved by the Spirit, chooses not to include any details about why John Mark departed. What we do know about John Mark from Paul's perspective is instructive. Young people especially. This goes to all of us, but I think in particular it could go to the young folks here. What are you known for? How do people know you? What's your reputation look like? Oh, oh yeah, I know, I know that person. He's the one who does fill in the blank. What do people say? How are they viewing you? It's obvious that Paul had this certain viewpoint of, of John Mark at this point. Are you known for fading away when things get tough? What kind of character do you have? Can others count on you to do a job well? Can your dad and mom count on you to do jobs well at home? Can your employer count on you? What's verse 38 say about Paul, though? It says, Paul kept on insisting John Mark not go. And you know, that phrase has been ringing in my ear this week. Because, it says at the end of 38, because he had not gone with them to the work. He started, but he soon faded. He began, but quickly abandoned them. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus is giving the parable of the soil. The farmer sowing the seed. That second place the seed falls is a stony path. It's those who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure for a time. Oh, afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. When things start to get hard, when things get difficult, they're gone. Not much depth. A starter, not a finisher. We need to understand and look in the text here. Paul, Paul has a heart for the Lord. He has a heart for the Lord's people. Verse 36, we just talked about that. Verse 38 also tells us that he has a heart for the work of the Lord. He's got a heart for the work of the Lord. The Lord had called him into his service and set him apart for gospel preaching. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He understood his purpose and connected his purpose in the Lord with work. Do you see that? He connected it with work. This hard work, getting the word of God out to others is not easy. It cost Paul almost his life a chapter ago. It doesn't always fit into your time. It, it's, there are no set hours in this in terms of sharing the gospel, sharing the word. It might mean carving out more time early in the morning or later at night. It might include some level of sacrifice. It's not intended, I believe, from what I see in the word. Not intended to be comfortable. 
Do you think Jeremiah felt comfortable when God gave him his call? Go, speak to this people. They're not going to listen to you, but I want you to speak to them anyway. They're going to come against you, but fear not because I'll be with you. Well, there's a comfort there in knowing God's going to be with me, but boy, knowing that none of the people are going to listen to me, I don't like that idea. And that's what God called Jeremiah to do. This is hard work. I mean, think about it. When, you, when your heart is set toward things of the Lord and you're walking with the Lord, there's a great desire to do that with others who are also walking with the Lord. Can you understand? Just from a human element, can you understand just a bit how Paul would have been turned off by the thought of John Mark going again? I, I can see that. I mean, this guy didn't want to be a part of it. And again, we don't know all the reasons, but Paul here is giving some insight in verse 38 as to why he didn't want to go to the work. Philippians 1.27, Paul writing there says to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The text tells us the results of Barnabas' resolve and Paul's ongoing insistence. What are the results of this? Verse 39 says that contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Division happens right here. Just a word about the sharp contention that's described. It's sad, church. It's sad that it came down to this. Think about how many brothers throughout the ages have separated due to a differing opinion. Keep perspective that their division is one of preference. Not a, this is not some deep theological salvation issue they're dividing on. They didn't divide on whether Christ's death was sufficient to atone for sin. They didn't divide on whether Christ was resurrected from the dead or not. They didn't divide over the doctrines of justification by faith or the sovereignty of God. They divided, listen, they divided on the choice of their traveling companion. Now, I'm not excusing the fact that they argued heatedly with one another over who's going. The Bible, in fact, shares a word about this, or more than one, but I'll share one with you. And interestingly enough, I came across a word that comes from the Apostle Paul himself while writing to Timothy. This was interesting. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, 23 and 24. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. You know, when Paul was writing those words as he's moved by the Spirit, writing those to Timothy at the end of his life, I wonder, I wonder if he was remembering and recalling his own quarrel that he had with Barnabas. You know, the fact that they divided over a traveling companion. Each one, no doubt, and I shared some, some evidence, if you will, on Barnabas' side, and, or excuse me, on John Mark's side and on Paul's side as to why they would go, why they wouldn't go, and... Each one building a case. Why or why not to take John Mark with them? Church, the Lord hasn't called us to build our case. But to be about building his kingdom. Inherent in division is that we take our eyes. We sang the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And inherent in division 
is that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put them on another person. See, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil ones, against the spiritual forces of darkness. Ephesians 6 tells us that. And oh, how the evil one rejoices when he divides the body of Christ. There's a song, a stanza, to a song I listen to and especially enjoy. And and the words say that the devil said, we'll use their pride. We'll attack them from inside. We'll fill their hearts with vanity until their differences are all they'll see. Black and white, rich and poor, to justify their holy war. You see, the evil one is about, he can get us distracted. He can get us arguing over something among us to divide us. Jesus himself talked about the importance of unity when he prayed to the Father. Remember that in John 17, 21? That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Listen, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why is it that we're called to be one? That the world might believe. Division in the body of Christ sends a wrong message to the world. Do you know that the world already calls us hypocrites? How many of you know that already? Yeah. Let's not give the world any more reason to add kindling to a fire that seems to be already blazing. The body of Christ is to be of one mind that the world might believe. And so when we practice biting and devouring one another, we send a message that God's own people can't even get along. Why would the world listen to the church when the church is bickering and arguing and complaining among themselves? Great question. Well, I'm grateful to the Lord that the text doesn't end at the first part of 39. Something is added on the back end of the division. Look at the text. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The text doesn't leave you with division, but multiplication. Instead of two going on the journey, there's now four and soon to be five in the next chapter. And there's going to be others that trickle along as Paul goes on his missionary journeys. There's going to be some other ministry workers along the way. Demas, Luke himself, will be involved getting in 16. Gaius from Derby. There'll be some other folks that are going to join the work. See, the work of the evil one was short-lived, praise God. As the Lord once again brings about his good in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of ugliness, in the midst of our sin... In the midst of our selfishness. So while division is seen in the text, I believe it's multiplication that leaves a lasting impression on the text. Multiplication is the ripple effect in the passage. God is still at work. He's bringing to completion. Listen, he's bringing to completion his work that he started in Paul's life, in Barnabas' life, in John Mark's life, in Silas' life. And I suppose one might read this text... And see the results here. And you might be inclined to think that Barnabas and Saul, they, uh, and Paul, they both got their way. And that may be the takeaway for you is that, well, hey, they held to their side. And if you hold to your position, you can just get your way. I don't think at all that's what the text is teaching. 
I'd like to point you to God in the text. His work is getting done. God's work. His work's getting done. His gospel is continuing to make progress. God, church, God knows the heart. Acts 15, 8. Remember that? God knows the heart. He provided a traveling companion for Barnabas and Paul. Even in the midst of the messy argument. And next week we're going to see God provide a third companion for Paul on his journey. This young man named Timothy. Well, the text doesn't share any specific results from Barnabas and John Mark. From this point forward, we're going to read about Paul's travels through the Mediterranean as the Spirit leads him. So how did all this work out? Maybe a couple of questions asked. How, was, was Silas a good choice for Paul? Well, we know something that, about Silas, that he was a prophet. Chapter 15, verse 22, tells us that he was a prophet along with Barsabbas. He was a Jew. In other words, he would have been able to have access into the synagogue wherever Paul was traveling. He was one of the leading men of Jerusalem, it says in 1522. They chose two of their best to go with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. So Paul's got one of Jerusalem's best. Leading men, chief men. He was a Roman citizen. Seems to be. Chapter 16, 37. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But they're in prison and Paul says they've beaten us openly. Uncondemned Romans. That's first, that's plural. Us. Paul and Silas, they beat us. Silas must have been a Roman citizen as well. We know that Silas was able to preach and teach. It says in verse 32 of chapter 15, the prophets exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And, and it's interesting because Silas, who's also known as Silvanus, he is, ends up being the one who, who helped Peter write. He was the amanuensis of 1 Peter. If you look at 1 Peter and you see chapter 5, that Silvanus is the same Silas that we're talking about here in the text. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. So yeah, I do believe Silas was a good choice. Was Paul and Silas in good graces with the church at Antioch? That would be an important question also to ask of the text. And we see that the text says they were commended by the brethren to the grace of God. In other words, they were sent out once again with the church's stamp of approval. They were sending them out. Just a note on verse 41. I think it's important to at least have one of those side paths for just a second because you might have a question. It says he went through Syria and Cilicia, that's Paul and Silas, strengthening the churches. You need to remember Syria was in the province of, in which Antioch was located. But the question might come, well, how did these churches get here? Because I mean, remember, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to Antioch back in chapters 13 and 14. They traveled to Antioch. They went to Cyprus, to Antioch, Pisidia. Then they went over to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And then they cycled right back around. They didn't travel through these areas that are spoken of in verse 41. So where do these churches come from? That's the question. Where do they come from? Hopefully you ask that question as you're reading the text. Well, Luke doesn't specifically say here, but I do believe there's some evidence in the scripture. In Acts chapter 9, in 28 through 30, right after Saul... Paul becomes converted. We see that um, he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and out, and he spoke boldly. Remember the Hellenists, they were trying to kill him. And it says that when the brethren found out, they brought him, that's Paul, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. 
Tarsus is in Cilicia. That's his hometown. Now, just a few chapters later in chapter 11, 25 and 26, it says Barnabas, while he was in Antioch, he was seeing the grace of God evident in Antioch and he was teaching and people were coming to the Lord. And Barnabas is like, I need a helper. And so he goes to Tarsus. That's what the scripture says. He departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And he brought him back with him to Antioch. There was some time there while Paul was in Cilicia, in the Tarsus region, Cilicia. And he, no doubt, I don't think he was sitting on his couch eating bonbons. I think he was doing some work for the Lord. I think he was planting some churches. And so now here we get that they're going to go back through Cilicia. And they're going to go back through Syria. And they're going to strengthen the churches. There are already some churches going on there. Praise the Lord. Well, Barnabas adds Mark. And the question might be also here, was Mark a good selection for Barnabas? You know, it's interesting to chart Mark's course in the remainder of Scripture. Let me just give you a few passages. Colossians chapter 4, this is a letter written while Paul is in prison. At the end, in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. Listen to what he says about these three men. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me, Paul says. What about Philemon? At the end of Philemon in verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Mark is now considered to be a fellow laborer. Or what about at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11? Paul says, only Luke is with me. And he says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for my ministry. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Peter writes. It's no wonder then to see that this John Mark goes on to write the gospel of Mark. Praise God that Barnabas didn't give up on Mark. Mark proved faithful. He proved trustworthy. Paul found him helpful. He found him to be of good use to his ministry in the end. Oh, there's hope here, isn't there? There's encouragement here. As you read this Bible, you begin to see how true it is of God that he never sleeps, he never slumbers. He is a God who is always at work, always accomplishing his purposes. And he chooses to use men and women, his day six creatures, to get the job done. This God who is at work through the pages of Scripture is also at work in your life, church. Sometimes he's subtracting in your life. Sometimes he's subtracting you from a situation, even if but for a time. He may subtract one from your family. You might encounter a death in the family. Or you may be in a transition. Some kind of transition that your job takes you somewhere. You're going to be away for a while. We need to also understand God's adding family 
members as well. Praise God, he's doing that. He may choose to add a trial or two in your life for the testing of your faith too. Are you adding, perhaps that's a question you need to ask this morning, are you adding unnecessary things to your life? Some of you keep adding stones to that wheelbarrow. You know, the imagery of the wheelbarrow and we're going through life and we've got the stones in the wheelbarrow. And There are certain stones God's called us to carry, no doubt, but then there are other stones that perhaps we just toss in. And some of you this morning are, are, are maybe weary, maybe worn down, heavy laden, and not necessarily because of what God's added. And maybe it's good and helpful to consider some of the stones in your wheelbarrow. They need to be subtracted. They need to be taken out. Some of you are tired this morning because you've been carrying unnecessary stones. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Well, division is seen in the text today as well. And church, let's see to it that what God has joined together. He's joined his church. Ephesians 4, he's joined and knit together his church. The parts are vitally connected to the head. And they are also tied together with other parts of the body. Just as God desires them to be. In the context of the church. We see also in the context of marriage. God has joined together husband and wife in marriage. And says, what I have joined together, let not man separate, divide. There's subtracting going on, there's adding going on, there's dividing going on. But I'm grateful that the text ends with multiplication. All throughout the book of Acts, you see the church multiplying. Not simply being added to, but it's multiplying. And when the church is following Jesus and seeing God's ways as the parenthesis, do what he says first. (laughs) Multiplication can happen. Multiplication not only happens in the church through numbers, as we see here in the book of Acts, but I believe multiplication can and should be happening in the lives of disciples, those who are following after Jesus. Are you multiplying in love toward other people? Are you multiplying in your joy in the Lord? Are you multiplying in your peace, even in the midst of the challenges you might be in? Are you multiplying in self-control? Do you find yourself easily agitated and out of control? Are you multiplying in kindness? Are you multiplying in your love for God and His Word? Are you multiplying in wisdom and discernment and understanding? You see, multiplication doesn't just happen. It takes a Holy Spirit-controlled heart, a Holy Spirit-controlled mind. It takes thoughts and motives driven by the Holy Spirit by means of His Word. Multiplication is ultimately God's work. God brings the increase. We practice planting, we practice watering, but understand that we serve a God who multiplies in ways we cannot imagine. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. You see, church, God's order of operations, they're always best. And so the next time, young people, you have a math problem. You see those parentheses. I want you to remember that God's ways are always the needful priority. Always do his way first. Always go his way. 
Take God's way. Choose his path. Go where he leads. See, because to know the right way and choose to go another way is going to lead to bad results. There's a sowing and reaping principle in the scripture. And in math, you simply get a wrong answer in need of correction. But in this life, church, we need to understand the results are eternal. Eternal. There's an eternal division the Bible speaks of. It's separation from the Lord forever. And on the other end, there's eternal, what I would call exponential blessing. Awaiting with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's the kind of blessing that awaits. You're just going to keep on. Let's pray. God, what a joy it is to to consider being with you forever. Seeing the Lord Jesus worshiping you all our days. And Father, in the meantime, pray that you would multiply your love in us. Teach us to relate to others in a God-pleasing way. May we desire unity in this body for your sake. That the world might believe in you. Remind us today that our struggle is not against the other brother or other sister. There's a work of the enemy going on. And his aim is to sideline anything or anyone who's working for God. Anything to profane the activity of God. Therefore, God, may this church body always be faithful to go to the work. To put that armor on each day so that we can stand for you in this perverse and wicked generation. And I pray that lives would not get picked off and subtracted from the Lord's work. I pray that because of you, we would cease from creating divisions and bickering and foolish arguments that are of no profit. And may we rejoice as you add and even multiply to your church in the days ahead. To you, God, be all the glory, great things you have done. Amen.